You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose podcast. For more sermons and content, go to SojournMontrose.com. Right now we are in a sermon series entitled Sinners and Saints. We are walking through the book of Romans. Uh, Today we will continue in chapter 8, which is a continuation of the theme that began really in chapter 5, hope as a result of righteousness by faith, or from what God accomplished for us in the gospel to what God will accomplish in us through the gospel. So our justification or our right standing or status before God is accomplished for us through Jesus's perfect life and perfect obedience to God's law. And our sanctification, being more holy, being made more like Jesus, is being accomplished in us and will be brought to completion by grace, not by works. We've talked about that a lot and we're going to continue to talk about it today. So in order to set up Romans 8, I'd like to briefly recap the last few weeks. Uh, From chapter 6, we saw that grace has triumphed over the power of sin. As it says, sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. And we are dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. If we are in Christ, we are no longer slaves to sin. Sin has no holding power or claim over us. But we are slaves to the righteousness of God from which fruit comes that leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Next we see from the first part of chapter 7 that grace has triumphed over the power of the law. So you have to ask, what does, that, what does the law even demand? The law demands perfection. It perf- uh, com- demands moral uprightness, no sin. It demands perfect obedience to God. But furthermore, as Marshall said two weeks ago, the law not only holds us captive, but actually incites us to further transgressions. The more we struggle against it, like a Chinese finger trap example, the more fast it holds. When we gain knowledge of our sin, we as rebels desire to further sin so that we can demonstrate our perceived independence from God. Just like in your teenage years, whenever it says, you know, honor your father and mother, often you don't want to do that just because you don't want to honor your father and mother. As soon as you know that you can, as soon as you want to stand out of the bounds of their control and say, I am my own person, I am my own man, um, that's what you do. You end up sinning in that way. So it's a crude example, but it works. However, but now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. This past week, we first saw that in chapters chapter 7, 7 through 14, that although we are free from the law, the law was never bad or sinful. Um, it did not cause us to sin. However, it does point out and highlight our sin. It is a perfectly just but cruel master It makes lofty demands without offering any hope and fulfilling it. It's very impartial. The law can't save. The law can't cleanse. The law is a ruler or a straight edge, and those who live by it are going to die by it. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me, for sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment deceived me and through it killed me. But the law is holy, and apart from Christ, me, I deserve eternal condemnation for offending a perfect and holy God. The law leaves no excuse. My sin is sinful beyond measure. I am on a level playing field with the rest of humanity. So up until this point, all the previous statements that I just made uh, convey a status. We are slaves to righteousness, not sin. We are dead to the law, but alive in Christ. The law is good and has always pointed out my sin, but sin used the law for its own purposes to hold us captive. Those are all true things. They have no conditions. They're just fact. We have talked about what is absolutely true about us in Jesus, but we have not talked about how that actually plays out until last week. If you are like me, I often look at these previously stated truths 
and I compare them to my current performance in life and I see a pretty glaring gap. I see a big discrepancy. I sin very obviously in some way and I think, I thought I was dead to this. I thought that sin had no power over me. Why do I keep doing these things? Even more scary is the fact that these, there are sins that I don't even know about in my life and those are going to be holding me captive in some way, right? Thankfully, Paul knows where I am and the rest of us and where the rest of us are coming from in this walk. And in Romans 7:15 it says, "For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate." Here, Paul makes a very distinct separation from our mortal bodies or our flesh and our souls, our inner being. And that inner being has been if we are Christians, that inner being has been indwelt by the Holy Spirit and has been given us a new heart, and it was planted in us in that way. And so there's a very distinct difference between the spirit that we have in Christ and the flesh that, we still, that still holds that. So sin still dwells in our flesh, and this is frustrating, this is heartbreaking, this is saddening, confusing, nauseating even. The flesh claws at your soul, and you're left standing there, maybe even screaming sometimes, wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? So again, that brings about an ultimate tension. If I am a slave to righteousness, if I am dead to the law, but the law is good, if I want to do the law, but it seems that I can't, who am I? And what am I doing? And what's gonna happen to me? Is God like mad? Is God upset? Does he regret saving me? Does he regret sending his son because of these things that I continue to do still? And so that basically sets up this whole thing right here. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Thanks be to God. This may be the most important verse in the entire Bible. It sums up the gospel. It gives life to our dead bodies. It is a glorious cry of victory, especially after everything else that's been laid out in Romans 1 through 7. In order to stand, understand it, though, which we're going to be spending a lot of time, um, we must ask or be reminded, what is condemnation and why is it important? Let's make it very clear if we are not in Jesus, if we're not saved, if we do not have a new heart and a new um, spirit, if we do not confess him Lord and Savior of our lives, we are enemies of God. <laughs> we are enemies of God. And how do we know that? How do we, the scripture tells us very clearly. Colossians 1.21, we were all once alienated and hostile mind doing evil deeds. Colossians 2, we were dead in our trespasses. Romans 5, we were enemies. Romans 1, we exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped the creature rather than the creator. Romans 3, no one is righteous, not even one. John 3, whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. This is a very culturally important truth to our church, especially in Montrose, because we live in a neighborhood and really even a country in some ways in which anything goes, and to say that God has wrath towards someone is frankly offensive to the generation of this day and age. But it's really important to understand that moving forward. So after everything I just said, we see how serious God is about sin. And this brings us back to that internal struggle. I'm a Christian, why am I doing these things? This is why Romans 1, 8, 1 and 2 is so very refreshing. Let me read it for you again. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. That's life-giving. We see that because we are in Christ, even the sin that we still commit is not held against us. It has already been paid for. We are free from sin and death as a ruler and a master. And Christians, we will never experience God's wrath, eternal death, and punishment for sin if we are in Christ. This life that we're living right now is as close to hell as we'll ever come. 
So we see in Romans 1 through 7, Paul differentiating between the spirit, of, um, the spirit and the flesh, the mind of the spirit and the mind of the flesh. And so we're going to talk about that a little bit. So read Romans 3 and 4, 8, 3 and 4. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. This is a reiteration, one, of what we had already seen in Romans 3.20, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. And so I want to remind you that we cannot earn right standing before God. The law cannot save us. It wasn't even intended to do so, but it does condemn us because of its righteous requirements, which we just said. But the truth is, even as Christians, even as Christians who have been saved and who have, have lifted up Jesus as Lord and Savior of their lives, they, we forget this. And after a failure, like something that we experience in Romans 7, where we stumble, we have a sin that continually gives us grief, we try really hard to make up for it sometimes, and we try to work our way out of it, and we try to get out of it, and we try to do, more, do better, try harder, all these things, we're stuck in that Romans 7 cycle there. But Paul clearly says in verse 4, what the law could not do, or what the law could not do, God could do, and did through his Son. Jesus was fully human, he had the likeness of sinful flesh, but he was without sin. He was in the flesh, but not captive to the flesh. He is the only person to have ever perfectly obeyed the given Mosaic law, and at the right time was delivered to the cross, so that the sins of that very flesh that we share may be put to death. God poured out wrath on the cross and gave the just condemnation that our sin deserved. On the cross, he became sin, who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. The law highlights and points out our sin, but it cannot remove it, pay for it, or forgive it. Only Jesus can do that. So if there's a difference between the spirit and the flesh, um, how does that play out in our lives? You've got to ask the question, am I of the flesh or am I of the spirit? First, again, we see this statement of status or truth. If we are Christians, regenerated, new heart, confess Jesus, we walk according to the spirit. It is not a matter of daily choosing one or the other. It is a fact. I'll say that again. If we walk, if we are with Jesus, we will walk according to the Spirit. It is not a matter of daily choosing one or the other. It's a fact. So you do have to ask yourself the question, though, am I of the flesh or am I of the Spirit? In order to ask that question, you've got to ask another question. What do I want in life, and how do I get it? First, the mind of the flesh seeks a lot of things. The mind of the flesh seeks independence, like we've seen before. It seeks power. It seeks comfort, it seeks control, approval, sex, money, career advancement, whatever it may be, it seeks those things. The mind of the flesh wants those things, but how does it get it? We strive after them. We work for them. Take any example that you can think of. Let's say if you wanted to say career advancement, if you want to be the CEO of a company, you're going to have to do a lot of things. You're going to have to work really hard. You're probably going to have to stab some backs. You're probably going to have to be better than everybody else. You're going to have to basically continue to pour yourself out to that end. That's how you're going to get there. And so therein lies the ultimate difference. Someone whose mind is on the flesh will always try to earn their form of righteousness. And when I say righteousness here, I mean their greatest purpose in life their greatest satisfaction. They may not use the word righteousness, or we may not use the word righteousness in those examples, but whatever it may be, religious or not, we are going to work towards that thing if we are in the flesh. Skipping ahead in verse 7, we see that the mind set on the flesh will be subject to death. For the mind set on the flesh is hostile to God. This, again, is the mark of the unbeliever. Someone outside of Jesus cannot please God, 
because they cannot even submit to God's law or desire to truly and gladly obey it. They don't even want God. They may say they want God. They may say they want some form of God, but they do not want the God of Christianity, the God of the universe. And no amount of striving will accomplish their goals in this. The person of the flesh cannot please God. I'll say it again. The person of the flesh, whose mind is on the flesh, who wants all those things we just talked about, cannot please God. And this is going to become really important in a few verses, and I'm excited about it. This, it must follow that those of the flesh only displease God. Their eternal position, their definition, even standing before him, before God, is one of displeasure. It's one of wrath. It's one of condemnation. And if you look back at Romans 8.1, that's why it becomes even so much more important that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That is the defining thing right there. It's Jesus. So what is the mind of the Spirit about? How is it different from the flesh? It is the opposite in every single way. Who are you, George Costanza? I am the opposite of every guy you've ever met. <laughs> Had to make a Seinfeld reference. Marshall always gets to make a Lord of the Ring reference, so just wanted to throw that out there. But seriously, it is the opposite of everything. It is the opposite in its exact nature of the flesh. The mind of the Spirit does not earn righteousness or strive to earn it. The mind of the Spirit knows that righteousness is a gift. The mind of the Spirit, his desire is for God first, and second, it's for the things of God, his kingdom, his church, his mission. And they can say, someone who is of the Spirit can say with conviction, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Psalm 73. The mind of the Spirit is set on life and peace. That's what you see in verse 6. We have life in Jesus and peace with God if our minds are of the Spirit and if we are of the Spirit. Again, fact, if we confess Jesus, we are in the Spirit. It is a statement of truth. And all of the above that I just talked about is true for us. Again, it is not a daily choice. It's just a fact. We belong to Christ. We were bought with the price. Our unredeemed bodies will still suffer like we see in Romans 7, and we see in just general death in this world right now. But our spirits have been made whole in nothing, no action, no idea, no temptation, no belief in a deception, no failure will make all that untrue. Again, we will not be victorious in every struggle that we have in life, but the only victory that truly matters was already won on the cross. Jesus is better. Jesus is better. And you can say that yourself over and over again. And if you are of the Spirit, that will be true for you. And you will say it with conviction, that Jesus is better. So, those are all the things that are true about us. And that's the difference between the flesh and the Spirit. So does it matter what I do then? Does it matter if I continue to sin? Like, does sin have any bound? Like, if I continue to sin, is it a big deal? I mean, I've just been said there's no condemnation, and that's true. But does it matter? By no means. Your new heart, excuse me. <laughs> your new heart wants, I can't read my own handwriting. Your new heart wants God, and it won't be satisfied with anything less. And so your bodies are still going to wage war against your new spirit. And your choices still matter. We will, we must necessarily put forth effort in our sanctification. However, remember that effort, that effort, does not earn us anything because everything worth earning has already been given to us as a gift. Jesus is that highest gift. Let me make it clear, our effort in both Christians and non-Christians does not save us, but it does validate or reflect that we are truly of the spirit or of the flesh. It's that validation. 
and it gives us assurance one way or the other. So going back to the text, let me read verses 12 and 13. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. If we are of the Spirit, we are not debtors to the flesh. We owe it nothing. Thus, since we are of the Spirit, by the Spirit, we have the power to put to death the deeds of the body. It is still true that sin produces death, even in Christians. You know this. It has earthly consequences. Just because you're in Jesus does not mean that the sin that you can commit at this point becomes neutral or that it has no bearing at all. If you're a Christian and you commit a crime, you're still going to jail if you're convicted. <laughs> but seriously, sin still produces death in our bodies. It says that right there in the text. And so in light of this, you've got to ask yourself a question. Um, or I want to talk about four types of people that are in this world right now. That may be an oversimplification, but for the purposes of this, there's four types of people. There's one, they're not saved, and they know it. They don't care about it. They don't want to be saved. They are aware that their minds are of the flesh, and they enjoy and revel in the flesh. God talked about those kind of people in Romans 1. Two, there are people who saved, and they know it. They have full assurance of their salvation. They walk by the Spirit. They enjoy the things of God. They celebrate with the saints. They are saved. Three, there's people that are saved, and they're just not sure because they find themselves in a Romans 7 situation or continually brought down and bogged down by the things that give them trouble. But they're saved. And four, the most dangerous one, there's people who are not saved, but they think that they are. There's people who will walk and you ask them, are you a Christian? Do you love God? They'll be like, yeah, I'm a Christian, man. But there's no evidence of fruit in their life. There's no evidence of them striving after or desiring after the things of God. And that's going to be a really clear indication of someone who is of the flesh or of the spirit. This is why putting to death the sin in our lives is important. Again, if we are saved by putting to death all the sins of our bodies, we have no hope. <laughs> if, if I, me, Nick Lipscomb, has to put to death all the deeds of my body so I can walk into heaven and be with God, I'm, I'm in trouble. <laughs> there, is, there is no hope there. That is easily seen in the evaluation of the empirical data of our lives. However, if we are, are truly indwelt by the Spirit and are of the Spirit, it will make a difference in our lives. And the truth is this, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body, but the power that, by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Our bodies are still subject to death like we talked about, and somewhere we fall in that category of those four people. But we have hope in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. We have hope that as Christians now, as we walk by the Spirit, that someday we will be given new bodies and our bodies will be transformed and we will be seeing him face to face and be known fully as we, we will know him fully as we are fully known. That's what's true in us. And so if you need to ask yourself the question, am I of the mind? If, do I have the mind of the Spirit or the mind of the flesh? Those are the things you look at. Are you putting to death the deeds of the body? Do you find your hope and satisfaction and salvation in Jesus? Do other people see that in your lives? Do other people see the transformation taking place? It's an important question. Now, we could stop there. The text get in there, and that's pretty good in my mind. Even in everything we said, um, having a mind of the Spirit is a great gift. 
But it goes even further. God doesn't stop there. Read verse 14. For all who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. If we want to be truly sure of our salvation, we look no further than here. The children of God are led by the Spirit. And what does that mean? If we are led by the Spirit, our actions to carry out our true desires are day by day, sometimes slowly, more and more inclined to God. The desires of the flesh become weaker. If we are led by the Spirit, as we walk with the Spirit, those things that give us struggles, those things that bring us down, they will start to become less and less and less. We're not going to be completely perfected in this world, and we're not going to be completely removed from those sins that bring us down, but we know that we are going to be transformed day by day, renewed morning by morning in the Spirit. If we are led by the Spirit, we have a hunger and we have a thirst for obedience. We want to desire God. We want to desire His law, not as a means of salvation because it's good. The things of God are good. We desire to follow Jesus because we love Him. And like He said, if you love me, keep my commandments. But we're not even able to keep those commandments if we don't have the Spirit. But if we do have the Spirit, we will be able to. And by that, we know that we love Him. The Spirit leads us to do these things as we walk in this world, and we, we are not left on our own to our fragile devices. I know everyone in this room at some point has thought, gosh, this is hard. I love Jesus, but I just keep doing the things that I don't want to do. But we are led by the Spirit. God has given us this gift. God has given us this counselor to walk with us through life as Christians to grow in holiness. And it follows then, if we are led by the Spirit, we are God's children, that means we're in His family. And I want to take a moment and say this is not the popular cultural meaning of God's children. We are not all children of God in this sense. Um, a lot of times you hear, especially in the news or whatever, that like, oh, we're all children of God and we're all in the same boat or whatever. That's not true. And I'll tell you why here in a second. In fact, John, the, the disciple who wrote several books of the Bible, is very fond of letting people know that they're not children of God. In 1 John 3, he says, those who make a practice of sinning, no repentance, no true desire for Jesus, are of the devil. And in John 8, Jesus tells some Jews that you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. We are not naturally children of God in this sense. We do not want to do God the father's desires. We want to do God, excuse me, we want to do the devil's desires because we are inherently wicked in that. So in order to become a child of God, if we're not naturally born that way, we have to be adopted. Right? To be in God's family holds a whole host of blessings. I'm going to read verse 14 and 15. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption. We receive the spirit of adoption. We do not have slavery and fear. We don't have to cower in fear that God will strike us down for every little thing that we do, or that he will be a cruel master, that he'll be just a taskmaster that tells us what we do, that you can't have fun, you, you can't go live your life in this way, but you have to be slave to what I command you to do right now. That is not what it's saying. We don't have that spirit. That was the spirit of sin. That was being a slave to sin in Romans 6. But being a slave to righteousness, if we're led by the Spirit, we see that we have that Spirit that is not of slavery and not of fear, that we are adopted and we have an inheritance with Jesus, and that inheritance is eternal life. The Spirit is the down payment for that inheritance, and we are sealed with Him and by Him. And next, this is probably my favorite part, we get to call God the eternal, cosmic, universal God, Father. This is not something that was okay before Jesus came around. Adam did not call God, as far as we know, Father. 
In fact, in the scripture, in the uh, original language, in Genesis 1-1, the word for God is Elohim, which means creator. It means creator God, and it means God, but it doesn't necessarily mean father in this sense, in the way that you think about your dad. And furthermore, adoption, as Paul's writing this letter right here, is not even an Old Testament Jewish idea. It's not really Jewish at all. It's actually rather Roman, um, as in, in the physical sense, as kids who were orphaned were adopted into families. This is not something that the Jews put a whole lot of emphasis on, and you don't see a lot in the Old Testament. Father is not a name of God that is often even used in the Old Testament. It's there, but it's not used very often. And there's a whole host of names that are there that you see, Jehovah, Yahweh, whatever else. Um, those are names that are speaking of reverence and describe a nature of God. But when the Jews think about that and they talk about God in that way, it was always out of a little bit of fear, and it was always out of reverence, not out of a personal relationship with him. But when Jesus comes around in the Gospels, Father is used exclusively by him. He uses it, and every time he refers to him, he always says, my father, my father, my father. This is one of the reasons the Pharisees were so upset when Jesus called himself God's son, because no man had that status. It was irreverent. It was rude. It was blasphemy. This is why it's so mind-blowing when Paul writes, you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. He is saying that we Christians share that same status that Jesus does in the eyes of God. When Jesus, excuse me, when God baptizes him in the, in the River Jordan and says, this is my son with whom I am well pleased, he's saying that about you. Going back to Romans 8, 8, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. This takes on a whole new meaning, right? Because if we're not in the flesh, we're in the spirit, that means that we are, that we do please God. Is God pleased with you? I know that you ask, you've got to ask yourself that question sometimes. Like we said in Romans 7, you look back and you say, man, God, I'm struggling with this. Over and over again, I'm struggling with this. You must be upset. You must be disappointed. You must regret saving me. But that's not true. If we are in the Spirit, if we are adopted sons and daughters of God, then God is eternally, wholeheartedly pleased with us because of his Son. We're like little babies whose divine dad is just so happy to have us. There's a lot of people at Sojourn Heights right now that are having kids. Um, and I really like this image because uh, I got to hang out with like an 11-day-old baby. And I don't think I've done that in many, many years. And I didn't really appreciate it for what it was until just now. But really, babies, when they come into the world, they cry. What do they do? They cry. They're demanding. They only need to eat. They need to sleep. They basically offer no practical <laughs> incentive for being around. They make dirty diapers. That's all they do. And they burp and they cry and whatever. That's, they're, 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 they're essentially, in those terms, useless from a pragmatic sense. <laughs> but have you ever seen, especially in some cases, but mostly, have you ever seen a dad or a mom say those things about their child that's new? No, they're excited. They look at that kid and they're like, my gosh, it's so beautiful. He or she is so beautiful. I'm so glad that they're here. I'm so glad that they're around. I'm so willing to stay up all night and be with them even though they're crying and they're whining and they're taking my bank account and crushing it. <laughs> they are excited. They are so excited to look upon that child and say, that is my kid. That is my kid and I love them simply because I do. Simply because I made them and I have brought them into this life into this world. If that is the case, if that's what we see in humans who are fallible, who don't fully understand these things, that don't fully understand the things of God, if that is the reaction that a mother and father have for their child, how much more do we see that from God, our Father? 
how much more do we see him say, that's Nick. I love him. I sing over him. I rejoice over him. How much more does he say that about Chelsea, Catherine, Megan, everyone else in this room? If we're in Christ, God is looking at you right now, this very moment, and saying, that's my kid. That's my kid. Furthermore, if we are kids in that family, if we are with Jesus, then we share the same, every aspect of Jesus is attributed to us because of our adoptions. We are brothers and sisters in him, and we share those attributes. So what are those attributes? We are glorified because of Jesus. We are given every spiritual blessing that there is. We are given God, the most desirable entity in the universe. We are given even him. And then we are given each other, the church, as brothers and sisters. We have a family. We have been adopted into this family that God has created. And this knowledge changes everything. You can't hear that for the first time and remain unchanged. You have to have a response to that. But even when you forget, even when me who has been a Christian or you who's been a Christian forget that and say, man, I can't be a child of God. I keep doing all this stuff. When we forget, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. The Spirit allows us to cry out in desperation as scared children sometimes, Abba, Father, I need you. Where are you right now? I don't know where you went. That same spirit reminds us, he leads us, he guides us and teaches us and leads us in our sanctification and reminds us of these truths that we've just talked about. We have that in Christ. We have that spirit of adoption. No slavery, no fear. And we can call God, Abba, Father, Dad. We get to call God Dad. So I said that we can't stay unchanged if we read this, so how should the text affect us? To the non-believer, the answer is simple. If you have been given the ears to hear this morning, I pray even right now that it is true that you've been given those ears. Please repent of your sins and believe that Jesus is both a faithful Savior and a sovereign Lord over your spirit. And that the inheritance that you stand to exceed, to, the inheritance that you stand to gain is right there. He's calling you. To the Christian, live in light of your identity in the Spirit. Continue putting away the sin that's in your lives in light of your new identity as adopted sons and adopted daughters, heirs of the kingdom. And do so arm in arm with the brothers and sisters of your parishes and the rest of your church. Day by day, trust and believe that the Spirit is actively working towards your sanctification and then work out of that knowledge. Remember that when you struggle that the Spirit is reminding you and calling you and saying, you're God's son, I'm bearing witness for you. You're God's daughter, I'm bearing witness for you. You have new life in the spirit, remember that. And then practically, I could say a lot of things right now, but I'm just gonna say some scripture because I think that's where it said it best. Philippians 4, 8 and 9, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. First Timothy 6, 11 through 12, flee the things of the flesh, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you were made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Colossians 3, 1, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. Put to death what is earthly in you, 
sexual immorality, impurity, evil desire, covetousness, furthermore, drunkenness, sinful career ambition, selfishness, pity arguments, pithy arguments. Put to death those things. You have the power and the new heart to desire the things of God. And the next time you find yourselves in a Romans 7 situation, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. And know that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and grace in our time of need. Preach the gospel to yourself. Let your parish preach the gospel to you also. And know that the Spirit, the Holy Spirit himself, is actively and constantly preaching you that same gospel to the very depths of your soul. There's no condemnation for those who are in Jesus. You can rest in that, and you can work out of that.